This week in Winternauts, don't believe Ondor's lies. And welcome to episode 16 of Retronauts. This episode was requested by one Hugh Frank. Hi, I'm Jeremy Parrish, and I'm the host of this episode. And I apologize for that, but you're going to have to put up with me. And we're going to hope this episode goes well, because this is the first time I've hosted an episode remotely from the rest of the crew, who is all in back in San Francisco, huddled together around a warm computer while I'm off in the cold expanses of the East Coast. Um, so if this episode turns out to be an unmitigated disaster, I apologize in advance, but the show must go on. So helping and abetting me with this week's show, we have off on the West Coast Auxiliary Office. Hey, it's me, Bob Mackey. And Ray Barnholt. Cat Bailey, hi. Hello. Cat Bailey, you're not usually here. What's up with that? Well, and we're talking about Yasumi Matsuno, and I've heard that, I hear that I know a few things about RPGs, so I decided to contribute. Oh, you gave away the surprise. Yes, that's right. <laughs> this episode's topic is Yasumi Matsuno. Who is Yasumi Matsuno? He is a man, and he makes video games. And He's the hardest boss of Final Fantasy XII, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, that's true. He really loves Queen a lot. He, uh, I believe he has 12 million hit points, which is much more than most game developers. Um, all of these things that you have said are correct. And uh, once again, Hugh Frank requested that we talk about Yasumi Matsuno. Uh, interestingly, as one of our uh, Kickstarter goals or one of our Kickstarter, um, you know, supporter requests, we also had someone request the Evil Lease games. So we're going to do a separate audio, uh, episode for that. Um, so we're going to be yeah. talking more about Matsuno's general work and his um, just kind of the, the, the overall approach he takes to games. And then for the Evil Lease episode, which we'll do separately as a pocket episode, um, that will focus more on the actual world and environs of that. So even though it sounds like it's all going to be just overlapping content, I don't think it's going to be too much of the same material. I think each episode will have its own kind of distinct personality. And if I'm wrong, well, then once again, I apologize. I think it'll work out. Okay. Cross your fingers, everyone. We're going in without a net. Yes. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about Yasumi Matsuno. Um, he's been in the news lately because he as of the time of this recording, has a Kickstarter venture going on with Playdeck Games to help fund uh, a new game called Unsung Story, which basically is a successor to Final Fantasy Tactics. And the game is going to be made anyway, but the uh, the Kickstarter project is to kind of you know bring it to new platforms and get more people involved and so on and so forth. And uh, by the time this episode goes live in a week, <clears throat> uh, that I think that should be over. So you'll know by then whether or not it succeeded or failed. Um, but of course he has quite a history and the reason people I think are excited about Unsung Story is because there is a lot of love for his games. He's kind of a, an auteur of video games. He's only worked on, you know, a handful of games over the past 25 years, but almost all of them have been really great and uh, very memorable and also kind of polarizing. Some people love his stuff. Some people don't. Where do you guys stand on, uh, Matsuno? I find Yasumi Matsuno an interesting guy because <clears throat> he... He's typically associated with Square and Square Enix, but he really does his own thing and he kind of floats in and out of projects. And I think Autour is a good way to describe him because he 
really needs to be given complete creative control. And when he isn't, bad things tend to happen. Um, his heart won't really be in it, as you saw in like Mad World. You saw in his exit halfway through Final Fantasy twelve. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing it now where he's kind of, he's not affiliated with Square really anymore, but he's, he's popping up here and there to do Guild 01. He's making, he's doing a Kickstarter and, you know, to be perfectly honest, I respect that. I'm glad that he's not beholden to industry trends, that he's true to himself and he makes really interesting games. And the, the other thing that jumps out at me about Matsuno is that he, as a Japanese developer, I find his love of kind of dark medieval fantasy, uh, it, it jumps out for sure, especially compared to a lot of other Japanese developers. It It is unique, um, but it's not derivative of like Lord of the Rings or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, his games are very distinct and I like that. I see him as a, like a sort of, and we'll get into a lot of uh, sort of the drama behind his projects, but I feel that he is a tortured perfectionist and that... Game development cannot possibly contain all of the ideas he has for a project, and very rarely do any of his projects come out with, uh, you know, fully realized. I think maybe two of his games total feel like, oh, yeah, he had enough time to sort of fit everything into these. But I feel like, uh, you know, sort of having a a less hands-on approach with games has done him well, um, even with things like Crimson Trout and this new one where he's not as personally involved. And I think him getting personally involved means that things are going to go very wrong if he's not given (laughs) years and years and years and years to finish a project. But yeah. I, I respect him completely. Yeah, I uh, am totally agreed. And I don't think he's nearly as polarizing as, you know, Akitoshi Kawazu, for example. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean. Few are. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like even the people who don't necessarily like his games still respect what he does. Uh, you'll see very few people say, no, nah, he's a bad game designer. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. he's he's interesting. I mean, um, Kat, you said something about him needing total control. I think even more than that, I think he also shouldn't be allowed to have total control. That sounds that sounds kind of, um, I think that'd be easy to misinterpret. But what I mean is that I feel like the particulars of game development actually kind of distract him from, you know, just doing what he wants to do. And one reason I'm so positive about Unsung Story is that his role is more of like sort of the creative visionary and the storyteller and like the, the combat planner, but he's not going to have to deal with the particulars of managing a team. And, you know, there are a lot of rumors about why he left the final fantasy 12, uh, development cycle. And I think some of it has to do with creative direction, but I think also just the need to manage such a large team and deal with that much overhead and that much, um, you know, bureaucracy just isn't suited to him. And Bobby mentioned something about only a few of his games have kind of turned out to be perfect. You know, like you feel like he really realized Right. I feel like one of those games is Crimson Shroud, which is a tiny game. It is like a fragment of a game, but it was just the right size for him. Yeah. And I feel like uh, Tactics Ogre, the remake, is another one of those. That's only because it was a remake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that Matsuno is an extremely experimental developer. And when you're that experimental and willing to break things and try new things with tactical games, even as this is especially the case in Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, uh, you're going to have some failures. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It And when he, uh, he came back to Tactics Ogre, for example, he was able to fix a lot of the things that didn't quite work out and it really brought forward a, an amazing RPG. So, yep. 
And another interesting thing about Matsuno is that his games have kind of a house style. More than any other game developer I can think of, any singular personality, like there is a look and a sound and an atmosphere and a vibe that I associate with Matsuno's games. I mean, even more so than someone like Hideo Kojima or, you know, Suda51. Like those guys are kind of mm-hmm. all over the place. But Matsuno. Like he works with the same people and he has kind of like this team. They're almost like a band. And wherever he goes, they yeah. go along with him. And part of the Kickstarter for uh, Unsung Story is to bring some of those people in and to get them involved with, with the game development for, for uh, you know, to keep him kind of keep the band together, basically. And uh, the, the people I would credit with a lot of uh, Matsuno's success are Hiroshi Minagawa, who's been working with him since the very early days at Quest. And he's uh, kind of the art director and overall visual designer. Like when you look at his games like Vagrant Story or Final Fantasy XII, uh. like he's really the one who defines the look. And he works with Akihiko Yoshida, the uh, character designer for those games. But, you know, the character designer is not the person who's doing the overall world design. And the two kind of work together. I think Yoshida gets more credit because, you know, characters are more visible. But Minagawa, I, I feel like his art aesthetic kind of defines uh, defines Matsuno's work. And from what I can tell, he's not going to be involved in Unsung Story. So it's going to be it's going to be kind of strange. I don't know if it's going to feel as much like a Matsuno game without his look to it. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. But uh, hopefully, you know, the game will be solid enough and it would, won't my, be such a big deal. My recollection is Minagawa also directed the Tactics Ogre remake. Yeah, he does a lot of directing too. Um, he he kind yeah. of got a start uh, as, as the director, so he's like a director designer, which is a pretty unusual combination of traits. Like I guess there's Tetsuya Nomura, yeah. but the less said, the better. When I when I think of Matsuno, I think of Earth tones, uh, characters without noses, and lots of Sandos <laughs> from um, God. Uh, we just uh, said his no, name. No, we didn't. We didn't say. Um, oh, we didn't. No, okay, I'm sorry. I might another, as well bring yeah, it up. More of his collaborators um, are Hitoshi Sakimoto. Uh, right, who's right. the head of Base Escape uh, Studio? They do a, you know, they've they've done more than just work with uh, with Matsuno and his stuff, but like his soundtracks are very integral to uh, to Matsuno's games. And he'll be, I think he's on the the docket for Unsung Story also. Um, Matsuno's also worked with Masaharu Iwata, uh, another another composer, and the two of them, uh, Sakimoto and Iwata, actually collaborated on a lot of the games, including Final Fantasy Tactics, and then. Uh, I would say sort of equally important to Matano's universe, at least for English speakers, are Alexander O. Smith and Joseph Reeder, who have done localization for Matano's games since Vagrant Story, and imbue it with, I would say the, the English versions have much more personality and richness than, uh, than the Japanese originals. Like Vagrant Story was pretty much just, you know, standard contemporary Japanese dialogue in, uh, in Japanese. But in English, it became this kind of Shakespearean, you know, like faux, uh, archaic dialect that was a little bit dense and inscrutable at times. But really, I felt it just fit the vibe of the game, and uh, right, like, it's yeah. really easy to do that wrong. But I feel like they mm. pretty much always do it right. Smith and and Reader, uh, people trying to do their style don't always pull it off. But the two of them, I think, always hit it. Shows that what a good localization can do to enhance a game that comes over to the West. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, Vagrant Story was one of the first games where I really sat down and, and, and was like, 
wow, the the writing in this is spectacular. I mean, there had been some good English localizations to that point. Metal Gear Solid, which I would say is kind of the most direct antecedent to Vagrant Story, had a great English localization, um, thanks to Jeremy Blaustein and, and his crew. But um, it was pretty uncommon to get that kind of richness in, in English dialogue. I mean, it's, it's it was still something that people just kind of threw away. And usually when you got, you know, sort of heavily localized things, they tended to be more humorous. Whereas Vagrant Story was just like totally straight. Like they, they played it totally legit and uh, it worked. Like by taking itself seriously, it really, uh, I think it really enhanced the game. If I may, I want a moment to be pedantic, just maybe 30 seconds. I always see people uh, talk about Alexander O. Smith's localizations for these games as if they are medieval or old English. And really, like Jeremy said, it's closer to early modern English, but it's actually more Victorian English because I feel like if he used early modern English, which is like Shakespeare, it would be lost on even more people. So it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice like little dab into the past, but not, you know, full immersion. It just like, it gives it a, like a little taste of something like a lost age, uh, the localizations what you get when you get an English language grad. Yeah, I spent tens of thousands of dollars to uh, learn this, and now I'm inflicting it on you. (laughs) Yeah. Gotta make it count. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you can finally get that out there, Bob, because I've heard you you deliver that rant many times in (laughs) private, so it's nice that you can finally just work it out of your system for the public. That's awesome. Too too many rolling eyes. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like Victorian, I swear. Yes, I'm going to continue calling it faux Shakespearean because that's that's fine. I totally, so much I, I, easier. I'm with you. I'm with you. Anyway, um, so back to to Matsuno himself. Um, Matsuno, I don't know exactly when he first entered the games industry. There's not a lot of information that I can find about his early work. I know that he started out with Quest, which was a development studio that began in um, about 1988, and they actually started out under the name Both Both Tech. I guess, BothTech, oh, right. BothTech. Mm-hmm. Um, and they published like two games under that name and then became Quest. And the first name, or the first game I've actually seen Matsuno associated with is an NES game from 1990 called Conquest of the Crystal Palace. We can talk about that in a minute, but, but because of sort of the vagueness with which, um, you know, older games of that era were, were credited, especially on the PC side where some of Quest's earliest games were, it's hard to know exactly who worked on the games. You know, things were either not credited or they were pseudonymous. And so, you know, it's kind of a mystery. So I, I was going to just talk really briefly about a few of early uh, of Quest's early games that, that seemed to be worth mentioning. I don't know if you guys have played any of these. Um, I feel like Ray is probably the most likely to have. <laughs> but um, me. That's what it said in the right. book. So there was uh, initially, I think under the name Bothtech, actually, or Bothtech, um, a game called The Scheme, which is a, I think, PC-9801 uh, Metroidvania-style platform adventure. It kind of looks like the Astyanax or something, kind of like a big, chunky, medieval, muscular-type character. But because it's on an old Japanese PC, I have never played it, and I know nothing about it. Hardcore Gaming 101 has something on it, and that's pretty much the extent of what I know about it. I don't know if you guys have any more information to relay about it. Aside from the fact that the uh, soundtrack was de- uh, was composed by Yuzo Koshiro, because he, you know, 
did PC-88 soundtracks back then. Yeah, he did everything. Yeah. I've only read the hardcore gaming article about it, but they pointed out that the main character looks a lot like, a lot like Adol from Ease. That's true. Um, there probably so was, there. yeah, there probably was some, uh, some Falcom influence there. Uh, you know, especially with Koshiro doing the, the composition. Yep. Um, I've, I've only also read that as well. I've never <laughs> really played it. All right. Well, that's all I we know like, about that one. I feel like even most, even people who enjoy Matsuno's work probably aren't familiar, too familiar with his work from Quest. Is, those are very early days. Um, it's it, it reminds me a bit of like when Blizzard was first getting started and, you know, they were doing ports and remakes and stuff like rock and roll racing, uh, which yeah, obviously... Yeah, you, you, know you know that they're working on a Blackthorn MMO somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> but uh, the very early days before he uh, kind of entered the mainstream uh, public, you, you would say that... I, I feel like the first time I really heard his name was when Ogre Battle came out and that was... A, a little bit after the Quest days. Um, are you talking about the PlayStation the, version of, of Ogre Battle? Or the earliest, the earliest days of, uh, sorry, uh, Ogre Battle came out in 1993, and, and was he still with Quest at that time? Yes. We'll, we'll get into yes, all okay. that. But yeah, definitely Ogre yes. Battle was under the auspices of Quest. It was published by Enix, actually, in America. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so yeah, I just wanted to talk about some of the early Quest games, just because even though I don't know if he had any involvement with them, they kind of show the shape and direction that uh, Quest took and kind of give a sense of how we ended up where we are. Um, the next notable title that they worked on was Dyson Ryaku, and uh, they worked on the Famicom version of that. I don't know if this was the original version of the game or if it was a port from PC. Ray, do you know? I, like, I can't find any information on the Famicom version of Dyson Ryaku in English. Uh, yeah, well, I believe it was released in America as Conflict. Oh, yeah? Hmm. Victor um, Kais? Yeah. Yes. No kidding. I may have to double-check that. But, uh, yeah, like, the Dyson Ryaku series, I mean, it's a huge, huge series now, and it's just one of the first, like, really uh, uh, hexagonal-based military military strategy games from Japan. And, uh, yeah, I guess, they, I guess they did work on at least the very first one, uh, whichever iteration of that. But afterwards, it pretty much just went to their original uh, publisher developer, Systemsoft, and now they have made them for years and years. Yeah, so I'm looking up uh, Conflict right now, and I don't see any mention of Dyson Ryaku. So I don't know. Yeah, I may have been confused, but either way. But still, there's kind of that strategy uh, basis right there. Um, and from from there, they went on to develop a game called Musashi no Boken, uh, The Adventure of Musashi, which is kind of a pretty much straight-up Dragon Quest clone um, because of like pretty much <laughs> one in every three Famicom games was either baseball or Dragon Quest clone. Um, following that, they had a game called Dungeon Kid, which is kind of like, a, I don't know, like the it's, a, it's an exploration dungeon crawler type game, very much an RPG. Um, and I guess it's kind of designed in the style of really early Ultima in that you have a first-person dungeon viewpoint, but then when you get into battle... Like, there's sort of a three versus three overhead view of, of the enemies. But unlike Ultima, you can't actually move around the screen. It's just when you choose a command, your character walks forward, walks to the side, walks over to the bad guy they want to attack, hit them, then walks back to their place. So it, it kind of looks like a strategy, you know, placement-oriented RPG, but it's not. It's just really slow. And then um, the last the last quest game that was uh, I thought was notable, you know, pre ogre battle was magical chase 
which um, yeah. is a very, very cute and very fun shooter that's basically a complete ripoff of the Cotton series. Um, you play as a little witch on a broomstick flying around shooting stuff. I mean, it's it's pretty much Cotton, but uh, it's yeah. it's even better looking. Like, it's, it's very vi- vivid yeah. graphics, very vibrant. And I know that one was directed by uh, Minagawa. Uh, he was one of the designers. Ah, yes. So... Um, so there's your start. But of course, that looks nothing like anything else Minagawa has no. ever done. It's like candy colored, <laughs> flying pumpkins, that kind of thing, as opposed to like grim and gritty medieval. But it's almost like go. a like a it's almost like a treasure game for PC Engine. I get that sense. Oh, really? In what sense? Like um, just the amount of just stuff the, lying around or? Yeah, just that whole audio visual sense that they accomplished with it. Like it has a treasure feel to me. Uh, but yeah, it's a great game. This is this is related, but has any have any have you played Game Dev Story? Yeah, yes. That's what this feels like. Oh, the, the yeah. days of Quest. <laughs> like, okay, we're making a shooter now. Now we're making an RPG. Uh, now we're making uh, an adventure game. It just feels like they're trying everything out. Yeah, you know, sure. yeah. to see what sticks. <laughs> and, and pretty now much the new systems app. Pretty much all of their early games were very derivative. I mean, like I can I can point a line to each of their early games and say, oh, it's just like that. Um, but you know, they were they were kind of finding their footing. I think at that point. And they were kind of coming in at the latter point of the Famicom Gold Rush, uh, mm-hmm. where a lot of the genres had been kind of established and just kind of getting, I, I guess, making money where they where they could and building themselves up until they could really break out. Yep. And um, Magical Chase was actually a PC Engine game, and um, it only came out in Japan, and now it's very, very expensive. Um, it's like $150, $200 if you can find it. Yeah, and there was an American release, but that was oh, also was just as rare. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I did not realize it came but, out in the U.S. And then years later, they ported it to Game Boy Color, and that is also super rare. Which is why I probably <laughs> heard of it. Yeah. <sighs> so anyway, those are Quest's early days, easily forgotten and not important mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. But then we move on to the Matsuno years. And yes. I don't know exactly, like I said, which of these games, uh, aside from the Matsuno credited games, he was involved in, but I feel like he probably worked on some of the games that we've talked about or that, you know, even we aren't talking about because it doesn't make sense to hire a dude and say like, okay, you make a game in 1990 and then you sit around for three years until your next game comes out. That's not really how development worked in those days. Maybe more so now, but not so much then. His first uh, project, he was the planner on uh, Conquest of the Crystal Palace, which is sort of a um, semi-obscure action game from the NES era. I remember seeing it a lot at stores and always thinking, this box art looks really stupid. And looking at the (laughs) the screenshots on the back and thinking, eh, that looks kind of nice, but... Nothing. There's nothing really inspiring about it, so I never checked it out until you know much yeah, later. The, the uh, box art is why I avoided it initially. Hmm. Hardcore Gaming 101 calls it a forgotten classic. Do you think that is the case? Um, no, I do. but I think it's a, <laughs> I think it's a solid B tier game. Um, Ray, why do you think it's a forgotten classic? Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't put it on a huge, uh, super tall pedestal or anything, but, uh, it is, it is, uh, better than you might think based on the box art. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Uh, B-tier is a good way to put it, I would say. It is a strong sort of B-tier platform. It's, uh, it's a platformer game with solid ideas to it. I don't want to say the whole game is solid because it does kind of have some <laughs> glitchiness to it, some yeah. general NES flickery, messy things. But uh, it is a fun game in that you know you, you, you jump around and you could transform into different things. And it's just it feels like a grand adventure in a sense. Um, and it has great music as well. And the graphics seem like a step above what you might expect from certain NES games from that year or so. So Yeah, I mean, definitely, especially for a studio you've never really heard of. Like, no one exactly. knew who Quest was at that point. Wasn't that published by Asmic? It uh, was, yeah. yeah. Boomer's on the title screen. Yeah, so that they're, they're not exactly, <laughs> uh, you know big players in the industry at, the yeah. point, at that point. Yeah, so and that's, in, in all those senses, I think it's worth checking out. Yeah, I, I like the um, kind of the expansive feel of it, even though it's pretty much your, your standard side-scrolling platformer. Like, the stages feel really big, and you kind of have to find your way through them. And there's a lot of, yeah. you know, like just a sense that, you know, you're out in ancient China, and there's a mountain you have to climb or a cavern you have to traverse. And uh, it just feels grand, which I appreciate. I also like the fact that it kind of explores and dabbles in Chinese mythology without falling on the usual cliches that you see in Japanese gaming. There's no like journey to the West elements <laughs> to it. There's nothing about the warring States period. It's just like, Oh yeah. It's aesthetically yeah. like classical China, <laughs> but it's not like, you know, it's not a cliche. So it's, it's nice. It's, um, it's a little bit refreshing. There are things to find in that game. Um, there are hidden weapons, which I think I'm always in favor of further exploration. I like the shopkeeper who, if you buy enough items from her, she'll fall in love with you yep. and give you a 50% discount. Ooh, of course. But if you keep trying to buy things from her that you can't afford, she'll get really pissed off and kick you out of the shop. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a funny little touch. <laughs> Typical but. temperamental woman. Wow. <laughs> mm. And then she explains how the weapons work. She puts on glasses and goes over to a chalkboard and says, this is, yeah, yeah, I like that, that a lot. That's Actually, a good touch. Yeah, and also she, uh, she like, narrates the game as a newscaster. Right. <laughs> so there's, like, this kind of little quirky element to the game in, in the, what, what's her name, Kim? Um, Kim, yeah. Like, this character Kim, yeah, just, like, kind of has this multifaceted role throughout the game. And it's very fun and quirky. It's nothing like any other Matsuno game I've played, but, you know... Like clearly, they put some put some heart into this game, yeah. and I appreciate. Actually, that. I just did a live stream of this game last night, so you guys can watch it on Twitch.tv. Oh yeah, uh, and it was the first time I played through it, and there was a lot of quick saving and quick loading because this game is all about being knocked <laughs> backwards in the pits. Oh yes, enemy placement is mm-hmm. devious, and the jumps are kind of floaty and takes some getting used to. And uh, but I gotta say that this this game does feel like a high budget production, but you can kind of tell where they had to cut corners because there are only five stages, and in two of the stages, the boss is just this, this kind of floating purple orb that moves in a weird like DVD screensaver pattern, and uh, <laughs> they basically just fill the room with garbage as you take you know hits at this purple orb that floats around. It looks like one of those globule things from Fester's Quest, actually. But um, yeah, the, the, like one of the bosses is this, is this like giant samurai. And I remember seeing pictures of that in Nintendo Power a lot because it was one of those, like, huge bosses. Like, it reminds me of the Mega Man 2 dragon. Sure. And you kind of fight in the same way in that you're going to the, in one direction as it follows you, but there's no bottomless pit underneath you. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it did have some pretty big sprites and art assets, uh, right. which usually was a sign of uh, at least an interesting NES yeah. game. One last thing, though. I, I didn't finish it because the last level is a maze. And it doesn't really give you any cues mm. as to whether or not you're going the right or wrong direction. So even with help from people in the stream, I could not get past it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, weird. that's 8-Bit Games for you. Yeah. It's 1990. <laughs> so that was kind of like a weird start for someone who would go on to create much different games. Um, you know, we, we mentioned Matsuno being influenced by Western concepts. 
And very specifically, he's influenced not just by like Western fantasy. It's not like he is like a big fan of Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. He probably likes those things, but he's actually really into Western history. And that really is reflected a lot in his games. And I think you start seeing that um, with his next project, the one he directed, uh, the Super NES game called Ogre Battle. We've already mentioned that. But um, March of the Black King. March of the Black Queen. That dude loves him some Queen. And I'm going to splice a Queen (laughs) song right here. Yes, that was Ogre Battle. It's metal, man. Um, Yeah, so Ogre Battle is... It's a strange game. It's like a hybrid strategy and role-playing game, which, you know, I guess Nintendo had done something like that with uh, with Fire Emblem and, and, and Camelot and Sega with uh, Shining Force, but it feels totally different than those games. In- interesting game for that time period because you wouldn't see a lot of real-time strategy on the Super Nintendo in you know, yeah. 1993. I mean, strategy RPGs as we know them were somewhat still in their infancy, seeing as Fire Emblem... had just come out not too long ago by that point. Um, So another thing that I like the most about it is its morality, um, that you go around conquering, uh, liberating villages and that sort of thing, and that you need to balance out the people, the the morality levels in your party. Um, It's good to have a high morality characters because, you know, they can fight well during the day and that sort of thing. Uh, but you also need a good mix of low morality characters. And the main thing is just don't have the low morality characters liberating villages uh-huh. because that's a bad effect. And by the end of the game, you can yeah. have – it has multiple endings. That's a Matsuno thing. And he – you can either end up yielding the throne right. and being a good monarch or you could be someone even worse than the empire that you destroyed. Uh, you can you can see his um, his influence from – Western games right at the beginning because just like Ultima 4 which was also a game in which morality factored in very highly Mm -hmm. um, you start the game with a tarot reading and you you read your tarot cards and um, that kind of defines the character you will play as and um, again yeah like you said the the morality really factors in there and if if, uh, civilians see you using evil units you know skeletons and undead and things like that um, they're not going to trust you and they'll consider you like a, a warlord or a despot and that'll reflect in your ending. So you have to balance out not only where you go to battle and when you go to battle, but also what kind of enemies you fight. Because if you fight an enemy that is weaker than you, um, that is also considered an evil act. Like you have to take on <laughs> yeah. more dangerous units than yourself to be considered a noble fighter. Um, so it's it's really complicated, and none of this is actually shown overtly. Yeah, like you have to figure it out. Another um, Matsuno trait because it's all clicking away. Yeah, behind the scenes. I couldn't quite wrap my head around that uh, when I rented this game, and I rented it a lot just to try to figure it out. And I mean, this is pre uh, mega internet time, so it was just like, why am I not doing what I want to do in this game? But it was fascinating yeah. from that perspective, and that it was so complex. It was maybe a year after Shining Force which I felt was like one of the first major, mm-hmm. you know, worldwide releases in that sort of genre. But it was so, so much more complicated, so much more nuanced. <laughs> so I, you rented it, and I imagine the instructions were a bit sparse. Uh, or if not Sparse there. or non-existent, I can't remember. Or yeah. maybe like one of those inserts, like, you are the ogre right. battler. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I've never seen the actual instruction books. So. I remember reading about it in Nintendo Power, mm. and nobody really seemed to know what to do with it. The, the consensus that you're kind of see, seeing leaking through the writing was that 
They're like, well, this is a very different game <laughs> yeah. that we don't know what to do. And if you're not a hardcore <laughs> RPG person, you probably shouldn't play it. Yeah. It also had a very like a very serious tone to it that I was not used to, and just uh, like the uh, the sort of uh, I don't know the emotion of war- like warfare that yeah. was kind of pervading throughout it. Right, and yet it's so cute. Yeah. Like the 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 cover art and a lot of the the character art are those um, uh, Yoshida portraits. Like he's got kind of two modes of art. He's got the more serious mode, and then he's got like the cartoonier mode. Final Fantasy Tactics is more on like the cartoony side. Yeah, Bravely Default's definitely on the cartoony side, but Ogre Battle is the cartooniest of all. I do remember, and yet that's that sits at very uh, it sits very much at odds with the uh, the feel of the game. Yeah. I do remember a lot of fairy butts in Ogre Paddle. <laughs> Just a lot of bear fairy butts. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you can classify it as a real-time strategy game. But, you know, this is 19, 1993, so it's before the RTS genre was really codified by um, Command & Conquer and Warcraft and games so, like yeah, that. So, yeah, it's a year before so, um, Warcraft even came out. Like, Dune had been right. out for a year. Yeah, I was going to say Dune is... Yeah, uh, Dune 2, yeah. Um, so it doesn't really fall into the, the standard you know, the rubric that we expect from RTS games. Like, it kind of follows its own rules and does its own thing, which I think is a strength of the game. I mean, it makes it more complicated and more difficult to to grasp. Uh, But, you know, the fact that it's not just following the rules laid down by Westwood and by Blizzard makes it something different and something unique. And uh, it's a shame that nothing has really happened with the series in the past 10 years or longer than that, actually. Oh, wasn't there a GBA game called Knights of Lotus or something? That's more that was a Tactics yeah. Ogre game. Okay. I, I consider Ogre Battle and Tactics Ogre two different things. Despite their sort of, you know, existing in the same universe, they're two different, very different kinds of games. Yeah. Right. And, um, yeah, his next game, Matsuno's next game was Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together for Super Famicom. Uh, that version eventually made it to uh, the U.S. on PlayStation and kind of a janky port in, like, 1998, 99. Really janky. But this was... Uh, yeah, but it actually came out in Japan in 1995, sort of sort of at the end of the Super Famicom's life, lifespan, but before PlayStation really picked up over there. Um, and, you know, if, um, if Ogre Battle was an attempt to unify strategy and role-playing by kind of focusing more on strategy, uh, Tactics Ogre was kind of the inverse of that, where everything became very much about the individual units and the individual actions of units. And instead of being real-time, it was very much turn-based, but there was that real-time element to it in that every character on the field had their own um, sort of speed or stamina bar, and they could take actions individually based on that. So unlike Fire Emblem, um, you weren't battling according to sides. It wasn't like, okay, bad guys turn, they move their entire army, now good guys turn, they move their entire army, but rather just like this total melee Mm -hmm. that actually, you know, resembles... Um, you know, I guess I can see how this became a Final Fantasy game because that's kind of what Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy's active time battle system did to role-playing combat, to take it away from like strictly turn-based and add this kind of element of speed based on individual character statistics. Um, and it, you know, it really kind of stands out and it's become sort of a standard for the genre now, but at the time, uh, I, I can't think of anything along those lines, like that specific that predates Tactics Ogre. Uh, it's very PC in a sense, in the sense, in the way that it's like the SSI gold box games and the RPGs that came out on PC in the late '80s, and a lot of console gamers really didn't have a lot of experience with that sort of thing. So they, especially in the U.S., they didn't quite know what to do with it. And 
of course, when Tactics Ogre came out over here, finally, it came out after Final Fantasy Tactics, yeah. and people thought it was derivative of that, which is... <laughs> yeah, they were like, what's this Final Fantasy Tactics ripoff? Yeah. Are we talking about uh, the design of the game yet? Can we go into that? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, okay, I, sure. I, think, I think it's like, important to talk about that, because, um, Kat, you're right. I mean, definitely the, uh, the SSI Gold Box games did kind of approach some of this, and even Ultima, you know, before that. But I feel like there was a Definitely real Ultima. substantial, like a material difference between those games and what Tactics Ogre did. And I, I'm curious to talk about, like, to see what everyone yeah. thinks about that and where that comes from. Well, you get more characters in Tactics Ogre, yeah. um, right off the bat. Uh, the original SN- SNES version was much more of a grind than the later one, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely, I, I do want to go. Yeah. Uh, I do want to go into that. Like, I, like the the remake is probably one of my favorite games of all time. It's so good. I played like a hundred hours of it. Mm-hmm. I got I got the worst ending, but I didn't care because the game was so fun. <laughs> but the SNES game and the PlayStation port, if you want to call it that, um, there's a major flaw in Tactics Ogre, and that is like one level is a huge difference. You know, one level difference is huge. And uh, the yeah. enemies are engineered to be at your your character's highest level. So you have to spend a lot of time. No, actually, the uh, the enemies are, are are based around your character, like your highest level. Okay, the character in your party who has the highest right, level. Right, right. But often they won't be at your level. They'll be like a step or two above your level. Like you'll yeah. fight bosses that are two or three levels above you. Yeah, and that's so, important. Uh, and it's important to keep all of your guys around the same level. So you have to spend a lot of time in training, throwing rocks at each other in order to do that. <laughs> There's a lot of like tedious like micromanagement. Sorry, micromanagement where they sort of um, got rid of that in the in the remake, which I appreciated. But it made the game a little too hard in that you always had to keep. Okay, I have to make sure this guy levels up. Make sure this person finishes off this enemy. I have to yeah. keep everyone around the same <laughs> level, or else I'm screwed. I kind of learned that the hard way in Final Fantasy Tactics as well. Mm. Before I was playing mm-hmm. Tactics Ogre. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of rock throwing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh, shouting. Yeah, Final Fantasy Tactics is 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 weird because it keeps the element where um, some enemies are based around your character's levels, but um, it's only the random encounters. The actual story battles are all at fixed levels, so it's really easy in that game to like just totally <laughs> steamroll the uh, the story battles and then get into these random skirmishes that are just like impossible like there's you know there's famous battles like five or ten monks or something at one level and they're all at like you know they're maxed out and they're just destroying your entire party in in in, in a turn um, so I I think that's a really difficult challenge of, of balance and Final Fantasy Tactics has a somewhat infamous area where you will save the game. And if you save it and you don't have a backup save, you can walk into a battle where you cannot win if you're not strong enough and there's no way to escape or go back and essentially you have to start over. Oh, but Tactics Ogre had that uh, too. Tactics Ogre yeah. actually mm-hmm. had multiple consecutive battles where you would go into a, a location and you would fight and your party would not heal or recover between battles. So when you finally got to the end uh, you know, of, of the chain of battles and fought the really tough dude at the end your party was probably whittled down and, and pretty much on the verge of death. So it was extremely difficult. On top of that, you know, the um, the enemy party levels were matched to your levels, so they all went in fresh, and you came in under uh, underpowered, overmatched, and uh, with reduced hit points and magic points. So um, Tactics Ogre was not a forgiving game. You also had guest characters who were freaking idiots, <laughs> and they were like that in the remake as well, where you would have to protect this character. And if they died, 
it wasn't game over, but you would miss out on a crucial story point or you would miss out on a crucial item. And they would walk out into the middle of the map (laughs) and get mowed down by archers who are extremely powerful in tactics over. I eventually (laughs) gave up on saving anyone because they had no self-preservation instinct, so they deserve to die. Just like, you're not armed. You're running out into a field of soldiers. Come this way to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Dark Ages, man. (laughs) Come on. I like the game a lot, but that thing kind of drove me crazy because I'm the kind of person who hates losing a crucial story character. And it drives me even crazier when it's an optional thing because I have to see what's going to be happening with them. And when they're idiots who get mowed down, I'm not happy. I think you need a more Buddhist approach to playing tactics games. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, perhaps. So you can you can kind of see a line drawn between Ogre Battle to Tactics Ogre to Final Fantasy Tactics. And it's interesting because with each successive game, things become a little simpler and a little less opaque. And, um, you know, in, in the case of Tactics Ogre, you can look at the morality system, whereas in Ogre Battle, that was just like impossible to decipher, even with a guide. Um, in Tactics Ogre, it's it's greatly simplified. And basically, there are story branches and you can go into... Uh, each chapter of the game uh, following a different story path. And at the end of each, each of each chapter, and sometimes in, in the middle of a chapter, you're given these important decisions where you have to make a choice. And, um, you know, they're, they're moral choices, basically. And they determine the, uh, the direction your next chapter will take. And the, the branches kind of diverge and split again. Um, but, like, you really get a taste of how different the game is from the usual at the end of the first chapter, where you're given a choice um, to either basically slaughter a village of innocent people or refuse to do it. And the weird thing is that the quote-unquote good choice, the lawful choice, is to kill everyone. Yeah. <laughs> because it's based around the concept, not of good and evil, but of order and chaos. And, you know, as a, as a steward of the uh, the army, or, you know, as, as, a, as a member of the army that was ordered to kill people, your most important duty was to obey your lord who ordered the slaughter. And therefore, it is the correct and lawful thing to follow his word, even if you don't agree with the actions behind it. So it, um, it, it, it was just a different kind of, um, of decision that you had to make than, than I think most people were used to, or even still are in video games. Maybe... Maybe this is the kind of thing you would see in a very cleverly written D and D quest or uh, campaign, yeah. but yeah, but not so much in video games. I feel like The Walking Dead does a lot of moral gray areas, uh, not necessarily ascribing to D and D alignments, though. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up the story in Tactics Ogre because, I mean, this game came out uh, 1995, and frankly, there just weren't was not a lot like it on the Super Nintendo, and I would. Final Fantasy VI and those sorts of games get a lot of credit for having terrific stories. I think Dragon Quest V had one of the best stories on the SNES. But I think Tactics Ogre pretty much tops them all just for it's it's mature. It's not terribly melodramatic. It does not follow into cliches of good and evil. As you said, there are a lot of gray areas. Um, And it holds uh, up. It it really shines in the PSP remake, which we'll get get to later. But... uh, 
that's one thing that you you often see from Masano. He tells good stories in his RPGs. They're very complicated. They're very political. Uh, maybe not approaching Game of Thrones. <laughs> I was going to say it was it was Games of Thronesing before Game of Thrones. Games of, games of yeah. Thrones. Game of Thrones. Well, this is this is the first time that Matsuno's obsession with history really came out because the entire story of Final Fantasy Tactics is based around the Balkan Wars and the way you know the uh, all all the things that happened in the in those wars caused all these different states to sort of split off and how there were all these different rivalries and genocides among ethnic factions. And it was a very complicated real-world world situation, and he used that to inform his, uh, his, his writing. I mean, sometimes there were things that were kind of literally copy and pasted from history textbooks and into Tactics Ogre. But by you know basing his game on this actual, like the way history actually works, the way politics work in, in, in complicated yeah. areas like Eastern Europe, um, it really it, it added something to the game and to the story that you don't get from, you know, like oh let's go defeat the dragon lord because he's pilfering our women and we must stop his evil from spreading across the world for a thousand years. Like it was it was much <laughs> more, you know, it was much more real than that because it was based on reality. But also you know just it was a different approach to writing a video game story. I appreciate that because I, I think that's something that we could actually use more of in the game industry because you often see games that come off as not being very well read or they base they base themselves off, you know, summer blockbusters, comic books, that sort of thing. And I would like to see games that a little more literary, maybe a little more aware of history. Oh, like Dante's Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Uh, uh, so I appreciate that Matsuno is informed, and that really shows in his games. Yeah. Right. So after Tactics Ogre, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but somehow a whole bunch of people from Quest left Quest. I want to know what happened And went over there, to Square. Yeah. Did he ever yeah, explain I've, that in an interview or anything? Uh, no, I've never seen any explanations of it. Um, I think they were probably just poached. I think Square was like, you dudes make really cool games and we would like for you to do that game you just did except for us. So that's what they did. They created Final Fantasy Tactics. And the game came out shortly after Final Fantasy VII. So it was, I mean, that's that's like the best possible scenario because yeah. Final Fantasy VII was a huge breakout all around the world. Um, you know, people had been playing Final Fantasy in English for, you know, seven or eight years at that point. But nothing on the scale of Final Fantasy VII. It just totally opened awareness to the franchise. And Final Fantasy Tactics came out like less than half a year later. So people were kind of coming at, down off their Final Fantasy VII high. And we're like, oh, another Final Fantasy game. Uh-huh, i got to yeah. play this. And a lot of people played it and said, what the hell is this? This <laughs> I, isn't Final Fantasy VII at all. I had an experience like that in high school because a lot of people in my high school liked Final Fantasy VII because of the obvious reasons. M- most of them were like, you can't even move your guys. So they didn't like the turn-based combat. But... Um, <sighs> People would come up to me knowing that I played video games, and they're like, "You have to explain Final Fantasy Tactics to me. I don't understand what I'm doing. I was, I thought I was going to play Final <laughs> Fantasy VII. Just like, no, 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 it's a different game." Quick aside for a personal well, it, anecdote: I was just getting back into console gaming in 1999 because I've been in PC gaming for several years before that. And one of the first games I played was Final Fantasy VII. And when I finished it, like many other people, I went looking for more because now I loved RPGs. They were great. And one of the two games that I'm kicking myself for missing at that time, because I think at that time I really could have 
dove into it and put like 150 hours into it and truly come to understand it was Final Fantasy Tactics. Because I did something similar with Xenogears. I did that with Valkyrie Profile, games ah, like that. Yeah. Suikoden 2 is the other one. I wish I had really, I oh, really yeah, wish too. I had gotten into that. But I didn't oh, even know about it. it because there wasn't great awareness of that <laughs> game at that time. But um, Final Fantasy Tactics, I saw it on the store shelf. I looked at it. I was like, oh, God, it has hexes. It has a grid and it turns. It have squares. Yeah, I, yeah squares. I, well, I thought of it as hex-based, even though it really wasn't. And the I was world like, is square. I have, uh, it's too much strategy. I'm running away. Um, and I missed out on a great game as a result, and I did not play it until it came out on PSP. Um, I missed out on the really bad localization. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so like I said, a lot of people were really put off by Final Fantasy Tactics, but I think enough people kind of stuck with it Either they got it right away and were like, hey, this is like video game chess. Or they said, by God, I'm going to grasp this game because nothing is smarter than me. I've got to beat this. Um, I was more in the tenacious ladder side of things. I didn't get it at first, but I kept kind of smashing my head against it. And uh, that meant I restarted the game a couple of times because you get to that, like the fifth fight in the, the trade city where you're basically totally outnumbered, totally outmatched by uh, by enemy groups that have higher um, job classes than you have available. They all have the high ground. And it's like impossible the first time you get there if you don't know what you're doing. So I restarted the game and got to that point and did a little better, restarted it, and then kind of, you know, by that point I got it. So it took me like probably 10, 15 hours to get the game. But once I did... I really, really enjoyed it. And I actually, once I beat it, I ended up playing it again, which I never do, especially with a game that huge. But there's just so much to it, and it was really, really addictive. To its credit, it does include optional tutorials for every sort of action. So me not being familiar with this game. The problem is the original 1997 game had terrible tutorials that, that, is, I mean, that were poorly localized and made don't, no damn sense. I did have, have to take notes on them. This was the darkened <laughs> item won't appear. Yeah. Uh, and we did find out that uh, uh, Little Money, the infamous, how uh, in the game there's a line where Little Money takes forever to go across the screen. It's actually a localization bug. Uh, Legends, Legends of Localization figured that out. It was like a weird well, bug in the game. I just read that yesterday, and it's speculative. Ooh, like, okay. He doesn't know for sure. I love that we have I, to I speculate on the localization. But it wasn't yeah. like that in the original game. Right. Yep. Uh, the so thing with- anyway... The thing with Final Fantasy Tactics was that it's it's a really high barrier to entry, especially if you're not super familiar with that kind of game. It starts off extremely slowly. Uh, it's, a, it's a slow game to play anyway. Like, everything moves pretty slowly, and it's very grind-heavy. And not grinding as in, like, you go and you fight some powerful enemies and you get more powerful. Grinding as in, like, you play the first few areas in the game several times. Yeah. You yeah. the same actions over and over again to level up your abilities. And slowly but surely unlocking, like, figuring out the classes, getting new classes, mixing and matching them, experimenting with them. And there's a certain min-max kind of, like, enjoyment to that that I, I can definitely appreciate, even though I'm not a huge min-maxer myself. But this is the kind of game that says to people... Here's what you here here's some tools and if you have a lot of time in your hand break this game break it wide yep, open yep. <laughs> and go it for really it. It doesn't help. It really doesn't help that as Americans we were not properly equipped to understand the mechanics of the job system because that was something oh, yeah. that was actually pretty common in RPGs by that point 
But none of those RPGs had come to America. Yeah, true. Like Final, Final Fantasy, Fantasy V, v hadn't or come three. to America. Final Fantasy III hadn't come to America. No, Dragon, Dragon Quest, Quest VI. VI hadn't come to America. Yeah. Uh, Tactics Ogre hadn't come to America. So all of these games that had a job system that would have helped us to understand, oh, this is how this works. This is why we need to change classes. This is how we mix and match powers. Like, we didn't get it because we didn't have those games as like the, we didn't have the vocabulary. It's like we were trying to learn a different language by jumping into, you know, a sophomore level class, just totally yeah. skipping the freshman stuff. I think the so closest was, thing to this game, really rough. yeah, the closest thing to this game on the PlayStation at least was Vandal Hearts. Yeah. And that predates a bit, maybe a year, mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, there's no job system, but it's still, it's kind of like a similar type of game. Yeah. Final Fantasy Tactics is, as you said, basically college and Final Fantasy VII was, Entry level at best. Uh, I like Final Fantasy VII a lot, but there's a reason that it was popular, and that was because it was extremely accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Final Fantasy Tactics wasn't accessible in the least, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. No. It just but the, the funny thing is that Final Fantasy Tactics is really accessible compared to Tactics Ogre or Ogre Battle. Yeah, like compared to Matsuno's previous games, you can really see where Square came in and was like. Let's kind of tone this down a little bit. So Let's, instead of having, you know, fielding 10 characters at a time, you could only field five. And so the job class kind of balanced that out by giving you, uh, you know, the ability to mix and match powers from different classes and, and to kind of custom create characters. So even though you only had five characters, they had the ability of 10. But, but by you, know, the same you, didn't, token, you didn't get that all right away. But by the same token, you have like dozens of classes and... All of them are good in their own way, and you spend a lot of time mixing and matching abilities and everything, and it can take a while to level up those abilities so that you can make them uh, a support. And there's so much, there's so many options that it can be really overwhelming to somebody, especially somebody who's just coming in. Whereas, no, that's absolutely true. Enough, but but at the same time, you're not like you're not given all those abilities, all those job classes right at the start. The, the way the, the job classes work is that they're tiered. There's a structure to them, and you have to kind of work to unlock them. And so you kind of learn as you go. And I don't know. I feel like there is a pretty good curve to it. But I, I definitely agree. Like I was just saying, you know, it was really complicated, but it could have been worse. Uh, any other thoughts on Final Fantasy Tactics? Or does this include the discussion of the porters at a later segment? Final Fantasy Tactics. Uh, I mean, that that wasn't really a Matsuno game. Like, right. he didn't work on the port. It was a bunch of other people coming in and saying, "Hey, let's do stupid things to this game." I just feel like uh, with all the changes they made, they did not fix the most important thing. Is that and that is the screen ratio. So, like the original, the <laughs> of original all the things. of all the things. I mean, like the original graphics. I think were really well composed. They're all really nice looking two D sprites. The backgrounds, eh, they're okay. But but the PSP version just squishes that image down into the PSP's uh, aspect ratio, and it just looks hideous. And as much as I want to play the game again with that local. I can't get over those like little fat squished characters and even the font is fat. It's just like, oh, it's so hideous. Tose, come on. What's happening? Final thought on Final Fantasy Tactics is that uh, I think a lot of people play Tactics Ogre for the story. I mean, it has really great battles, but when it comes down to it, the story is a thing, right? But whereas a lot of the people I know who are huge Final Fantasy Tactics fans, and I know a couple of them, they're still playing even now, regardless of the story, simply because they're having that much fun playing around with their party doing various missions, doing multiplayer battles, that sort of thing. It's almost like comfort for them, food for them. It's it's really interesting. It's, I have yeah, not seen many R- tactical RPGs like that. 
the the flip side to that is that the story in Final Fantasy Tactics is not that spectacular. I mean, it's a good story. <laughs> yeah. But it's based on, you know, the War of the Lions as opposed or the war sorry, the War of the Roses as opposed to the Balkan Wars. So it's a much simpler scenario. It's just basically two kingdoms plus an evil church. Um and not only that, but there are no story branches. I mean, it really feels like they took uh, Tactics Ogre story, especially the main relationship between the uh, the lead character and his friend and his sister, and just kind of compressed it down into something very simple and very linear. And, uh, you know, I feel like you get, like you said, more gameplay out of it. Like, the game is more fun and more addicting, but uh, definitely on the story front, it you can see how they kind of made it more mainstream appeal also clouds in it the end (laughs) ray do you have any thoughts on uh tactics oh no i I don't think i can add much more to it i think uh you know i was originally drawn to it just because of the uh the opening theme like that was oh yeah it's beautiful yeah uh that's all literally all i can add to this this (laughs) because i agree with everything else you mean the uh like the cutscene with the cg chocobos running uh yes that's pretty sweet So after Final Fantasy Tactics, um, Matsuno's next game uh, didn't actually come out for another three years. So uh, in that time, he basically stepped back from the strategy genre and went with a much more pared down kind of game, at least Mm. in some sense, in that you were controlling a single character. Uh, Vagrant Story, I feel like, was was kind of meant to be an answer to uh, to, uh, Metal Gear, Basically, to like to take the Metal Gear secret agent infiltrates an enemy fortress kind of style, uh, you know, lots of cinematics, lots of really great 3D immersive graphics, and totally just Matsuno it up. I want to jump in really quickly to say that unlike Final Fantasy Tactics, I did pick this game up when it first came out, and I was blown away by how good the graphics were oh, on the too. PlayStation in 2000. the The models were really detailed. Uh, the world was really well realized. It was really cinematic um it's one of the best looking games on the playstation even now and immediately in the prologue you fight that gigantic dragon in the church when there's like rain pouring down and light filtering in through the stained glass windows it's like right up front there like this game is going to be amazing we're going to go out with a bang on this hardware yep yeah and i mean it's all so cinematic not just in the uh the cutscenes, but in the action itself like it's all composed in a very interesting way um, but not in the sense that contemporary games are cinematic by just you know trying to be like Hollywood. Like this game uses its own visual language, and it's not really quite like anything else I've ever played before. It doesn't want to be Hollywood. Um, it definitely has movie like feeling, a movie like feeling to it in certain moments, but it just doesn't feel like it's you know trying to do the um, the movie thing necessarily. Uh, all the way down to the fact that the dialogue isn't voiced it's told through like comic book word balloons which is very kind of weird and out of place for the game but it gives it this very distinct vibe also i did want to add jeremy in in this in this era of squaresoft full motion video insanity there's only maybe like five seconds of full motion video in this game uh it's a little more than that but yeah there is basically just the intro yeah which consists of 
uh, the main character, Ashley Riot, you never see his face. It just shows him like gearing up and, and kind of messing with his equipment and, and getting ready for combat. And that's intercut with um, the uh, the high priest Mullenkamp uh, doing like a belly dance. Right, right. Which uh, doesn't seem to have anything to do with the game, but basically the Mullenkamp cut cult is uh, is kind of the, the ones who instigate the entire plot. So there is kind of a tangential connection to the woman in the bikini, sort of. But mostly it's just a woman in a bikini dancing at the intro. Yeah. So you get all this amazing in- in- intro, and then you get into the game proper, and then you do a lot of box puzzles. Yeah. This game had a lot of box puzzles. This game and Tron Bond came out in the same year, and I'm like, it's box puzzle mania for uh, the PlayStation. <laughs> I was Finally, okay we can do that. Sokoban in 3D. Yeah. And by God, uh, they made the most of it. With the greatest story ever. <laughs> and it had a lot of systems to it. Oh, God. Uh, Sokoban Tactics. <laughs> you could target limbs. You had a risk factor yeah. where if you got too high, you stopped being yeah. able to hit anybody. So I think I think it's important to mention sort of the direct antecedent to this game's combat system, which oh, yeah. is Parasite Eve. Like the original Parasite mm. Eve kind of gave you that same, uh, like a single person running around, enemies would come into view, and you'd kind of freeze the action and, and choose your targets and choose your actions. So it was semi-real-time, semi-turn-based, um, but but bigger story like took it in a just like it you know amplified it like ten times over right. Well, I uh, I played for quite a while and I was doing pretty well, and then I ran into a boss who I literally could not hurt. Uh, it was uh, I believe a crustacean of some sort. Was it a turtle? It's like, no, it always oh, like, like a giant crab. It was a giant it was enemy like a crab. crab. Yeah, it was a giant crab. I could <sighs> not actually do any damage to it. I could not figure you, out what I was blah, supposed blah, blah, to be weak doing. Point. Massive damage. Oh, uh, I think GameFAQs existed by this point, it but did. I did not have the wherewithal to go and check what I was supposed to be doing because I was still very much in a strategy guide mindset. Right. And I put it away and never came back to it, sadly. I, th- I think I remember that boss because that was the moment where the exact same thing happened to me. It's like now now you have to figure out these systems. The affinity system is especially important because mm-hmm. there are six types of enemies, I believe, and each time you attack that kind of enemy with a weapon, you get uh, more powerful towards that enemy with that weapon. But at the same time, it decreases an affinity, an affinity towards the opposite kind of enemy so you basically have to have six kind of weapons on hand at all times and sort of switch yep. between them and i believe with that with that crab or turtle or whatever it was you had to figure out what its affinity was and sort of have a weapon ready for it um if I, it's, it's been like 14 years so my apologies but um yeah the affinity thing was really something you had to wrap your head around and really uh like having a, a different type of weapon for each enemy was important in this game yeah the um the game was really really kind of opaque in that sense until i realized that even though you were playing as a single character, what you really needed to do was treat your weapons as your party members. Yeah, and yeah. And each, each weapon needed to specialize against a different kind of enemy. And you had to make smart decisions. Like, if you decided to use spears against the undead, that was pretty stupid because most undead are, like, skeletons or zombies. And piercing weapons, you know, classically aren't very good against enemies that have, you know, huge gaps in their rib cage or decomposing flesh. You needed something that could smash or cut. Whereas beasts, you probably wanted, you know, like a piercing weapon or I think for the, you know, for something with armor, you wanted uh, a hammer or something that could pierce. You know, you had to think about it logically and then you had to kind of maintain all the different weapons that you needed. And at the same time, then you had spells and spell effects and, <laughs> and can't r- mention risk, which was it's almost like overheating a weapon. Like the more you attack something, the more your risk rose. And once your risk maxed out, like basically an enemy could kill you in one hit. So you had to mitigate that 
And it was really difficult to do because like it would fall on its own naturally over time, but it was slow. And there were items you could use and uh, those would drop your risk, but those were very rare and precious. So then you had to figure out that you had all these special abilities you could learn that you could attach to your abilities, like to your, to your attacks. And God, it's so complicated. Yeah. So like when you attack something, <laughs> there was a timing based system, kind of like, you know, Super Mario RPG. And by getting the rhythms right, if you could do these rhythms just right, not only would you get extra attacks, but you would also activate the associated skill. So you could have something like on your, your melee attack that would mitigate your risk. So if you could do chaining attacks with your, uh, with your weapons, and of course, each kind of weapon had a different kind of timing attached to it. And also you could defend with, with proper timing, but each enemy attack had its own timing. <laughs> it is crazy. So yeah. it was just like all this stuff to juggle and also, it was so yeah. complicated, but I do it's think like, that to me, is... it's worth it because it's all so good. It all fits together so well. And once you mm-hmm. get it, it's so good. I don't know. At, at times it seems like this might be a game that's been over-engineered to its detriment. <laughs> I mean, even just the fact, just the idea of the risk factor, um, Maybe they could have left that out, and it would have been a sharper game. There's also I think, uh, I think the one thing I could have lived without would be the uh, limb damage, like yeah. having like a broken arm or something while you're battling, or you know, a, a dead leg. That was um, that was a little much, but mm-hmm. the rest of it I thought actually worked really well together. Not to bog but us down me. in um, oh sorry, not to bog us down in more details about this game, but one of the things I liked the most, which I felt was most kind of uh, hindered by the technology, was the the weapon crafting system. And I believe you can craft armor as well. Oh is that yeah, correct? yeah. Mm-hmm. And every time you cra- you, uh, it had to read from the memory card every time you you refreshed or every time you did something with the weapons. So it took a long time. There's like a lot of saving and loading. And I believe this game took up a lot of memory card space because of all the uh, different yes. uh, weapons you could yep. make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it was so such a. And I'm sure like things like Skyrim and whatever outdo it today but back in 2000 it was so intricate into what kind of weapons you can make and how they can go horribly wrong you know if you choose make the wrong choices right yeah the uh the io system on the uh, playstation memory card port was not very good so uh having to read from your memory card in order to perform those uh customization actions yeah that really slowed the game down it was very frustrating Fortunately, there was a very logical system for crafting, and it was like once you figured it out, there was a pretty easy way to follow the path to make the maxed out armor, the Damascus style armor. But you know, it it, um, it took a little while to figure that out, and it did involve the uh, the really horrible PlayStation I/O port. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely part of the game's downfall. Also, one of the big problems with the game is that originally it was designed to be like a say ten to fifteen hour experience. But the publisher said, wait a minute, no <laughs> one's going to pay $40 for a game that's only 15 hours long. It's an <laughs> RPG. It's got to be longer. So there's just copy and pasted content all through the game. It's just padded out with like entire areas of the dungeon that have been duplicated. And uh, there's nothing, you know, there's no actual content to it. It just takes longer to beat uh, because of publisher interference. Yeah, that's, that's probably where Matsuno started to get pissed off. It's kind of a shame that it didn't get ported or it didn't get remade for the PSP, for example, like uh, oh. Tactics Ogre, because I think that you could, there were areas for improvement. And so, it, at a certain point, it became really, really hard to find. It was kind of one of the holy grails for the PlayStation for a while. Uh, as a, but as a result, it's kind of like faded into the mists of history. Um, because let me tell you something fun. 
which okay. is that when I was first told about the Tactics Ogre remake, like two or three years before it came out, I was actually told it was going to be a Vagrant Story remake. Oh. And I don't know if... I don't know if that was just misinformation, like the person who leaked that info to me was wrong, or if the plan actually changed and at some point they said, you know what, we're probably going to have better luck remaking Tactics Ogre, so let's do that instead. That's but interesting because it when was they finally here. announced, Yeah, when they finally announced the Taco remake, I was like, ah, no, I want a Vagrant Story. I mean, I love the Tactics Ogre remake, don't get me wrong. Like Bob, it's one of my favorite games ever, but man, I, I just, I really was looking forward to the modernized, smoothed over, perfected vagrant story. It would have been so good. Yeah, wishful thinking. Well, I think we can just cut out this whole section with Jeremy uh, saying earlier, God, it's just so complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I had to be, like, I was in the perfect place for that game. Uh, I had just graduated from high school, you know, and it's just like I have this whole summer to figure out this impossibly Uh, complex game. Yeah. So vagrant story, (laughs) yes, the end of the PlayStation era. It was lovely. And then Matsuno went on to Game Boy Advance and created a game that was actually much, much simpler than anything he had done before, which was Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. Kat, you're a big fan of that game, aren't you? I, I wouldn't call myself a big fan, but I'm definitely a fan. <laughs> a big fan. I'm also a fan, Huge along fan. with Kat. Uh, I would like to go back to 2003 really quickly and just point out, you may recall that Square Enix and Nintendo's relationship was kind of acrimonious at that time. And then all of a sudden you had Final Fantasy Tactics Advance coming out on the GBA because the GBA was actually doing pretty well mm. by 2003. And you also had uh, Final Fantasy for the GameCube. It was called... Crystal Chronicles. Crystal Chronicles. Crystal Thank Chronicles. you very much. Yeah, so, so there's a story there, which is that you know Square Enix and Nintendo parted ways acrimoniously with the advent of the PlayStation. And Square said, we're going to do Final Fantasy VII on PlayStation, mofos. Forget your SGI demo of Final Fantasy VI characters fighting against Bahamut. That's crap. So, you know, then there was like this back and forth sniping in the media. And I think Square kind of realized they painted themselves into a corner on the portable market. So for a while, they were supporting the Wonderswan. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, no one actually bought that system. So they had, like, custom one, Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy II Wonderswan systems with the, the games packed in. And eventually Bandai was just like, yeah, this is stupid, guys. So they killed the Wonderswan. And at that point, Square kind of crawled back and was like, eh, Nintendo, um, we'll, we'll be nice. We'll make custom games for you. Okay? Okay, thanks. So I first picked up Final Fantasy Tactics Advance in 2007. It was sent to me by a reader uh, for free, somebody who liked my blog uh, at that time. And I had not played Final Fantasy Tactics by that point. And most most of my SRPG interests were in like Fire Emblem and that sort of thing. So Final Fantasy Tactics Advance was definitely a, a switch. And I felt like it was a good way to get into that style of game. I don't know that I would have been able to get into Tactics Ogre or the original Final Fantasy Tactics, if I had not had Final Fantasy Tactics Advance as that kind of gateway. It's uh, colorful. um, It's a lot faster in the way that it moves. It's still relatively deep in its gameplay, but maybe not as insanely customizable as the original Final Fantasy Tactics. (laughs) I'm actually of the belief that the races add something to it. Uh, I like being able to... (laughs) (laughs) No... Uh, I don't think that it necessarily simplifies, overly simplifies it at all. The class system remains intact. You just have no, different I would, characters. No, I would say quite the opposite. I would say it actually needlessly complicates the game. Okay. 
Um, and Final Fantasy Tactics A2 actually made it worse by, uh, by you know, the crafting system and all the drops you had to use in order to unlock skills for the race-specific job classes. But I did enjoy... Like, to me, that was... Yeah, to me, that was uh, probably the biggest misstep in the game, honestly. But I did enjoy recruiting the different races into yeah. my party uh, and customizing them in the right way. It, it, it did not... It did not bog down the game for me. And then meanwhile, so the judges, that that's a complicated, that's, I don't, I don't think the judges worked out extremely well for that game. And I think that might be an understatement. Um, it did not, it was not as much of a detriment to the game for me as it was for some other people. I think that arbitrarily limiting uh, certain maps and adding restrictions was a little dumb. But at the same time, I'm glad that they took out permadeath to some extent, except for the areas where you could go out into the non-regulated areas. Mm-hmm. It added an interesting element to the lore. Mm-hmm. And I like the story. I, I did. I thought it was a fun inversion on the typical Final Fantasy story. And I think this is the introduction of the many races that would continue throughout yeah. these games. Like it the, made uh, Evil East yeah, a more I mean, interesting we should, place. We should probably hold some of this we should probably hold some of this for the Evil East right, podcast right. because really what what FFTA did that was most important was sort of pave the way for Final Fantasy twelve and basically yeah. come up with a, like a really, really solidified vision of what Ivalice was about. But yeah, the races were a big part of that. And also the judges. And um you, you mentioned Kat the the idea of permadeath not being a part of the game because, you know, basically combat were, were like um fun skirmishes yeah. between uh between different uh clans. But then you could leave the areas where the judges were watching over things and protecting things called the Yogs. And, um, like, yeah, then all of a sudden the game took on this sort of serious tone where, you know, you, you could actually lose key characters. You could lose story essential characters like uh, Mont Blanc, the, the Moogle. Mm. And um, so, you know, if you played it enough, you started to get into these kind of interesting inversions of the the game mechanics. Yeah. But But most of the game was kind of uh, hampered by that whole judge system where basically every battle had its own set of rules to it. And this was part of the story. And like the further you get to sort of destroying the world that uh, your friend Mute has created, um, the more restrictions he starts to put on each battle. So it adds this complication, but it's not always for the best. Like sometimes it can be really frustrating. Like when there's a law that says you can't inflict harm on enemies, (laughs) That's kind of BS. Right. Yeah. There, there are cases where you do have to reset uh, or go back to an old save just to make it easier on your life. But like with Cat, I enjoyed the game. I had played the hell out of FFT when that came out, and I got this when this game came out. And yeah. I think a lot of it was sort of the Castlevania Circle of the Moon phenomenon where you were just excited to have a version of a, of a really good console game on a portable. And this a is a much better bit, game. Like a 16-bit full-blown RPG on the GBA, which yeah. was not something – I mean, we were coming off the Game Boy Color – which had really simplified ports of NES games like right. Chrysalis on it. So this felt legit. This felt like the real thing. And even though I played it in 2007, like the GBA wasn't that old no, at that no, point. No. And it it was really enjoyable. It was the kind of game that could keep me occupied on the train. It didn't feel overblown. It it was right. relaxing. Yeah. And I, I understand Jeremy's issue with the uh, the class system, but I just have I like having a a, a different like a, a melange of races in my party, which is something I think FF12 did a bad job at, and that most of the characters were human. But I love the races in this game, and I love having like Moogles and uh, bunny assassins and those dopey looking hippopotamus like wizards. It just like I love the character design in this game. Mm-hmm. 
Oh no, I I like the races themselves. I just didn't right. like the mechanical restrictions that were attached to them. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I thought like in terms of defining a world, tactics advance was really interesting. Mm. Um, I just I have I don't know like I went into the game open minded and um, I kind of have just never been able to finish it. Like every yeah. time I play it, and I've made some some genuine efforts to get through it. I get like twenty hours into mm. it or twenty five, thirty maybe. And I'm just like, oh, I can't do this anymore. It also, weir- like, uh, weirdly enough, it retained the Final Fantasy IX skill system in which you learn skills by equipping weapons and earning points mm-hmm. while you had those weapons and armor equipped, which was an odd choice to me, but I liked how it was implemented. I don't know how everyone feels about that. It was interesting, yeah. Okay. Uh, it put a lot more emphasis on the gear, that's for sure. Yeah. It was interesting. In the original Final Fantasy Tactics, it was quite possible to out-level your gear. <laughs> yeah. And it became really hard to find better gear until later in the game so um i appreciate the different approach that they took in final fantasy tactics advance yeah one thing i will say for tactics advance is that it did give rise to a let's play of the game where someone mastered the ninja class (laughs) and used an an item duplication glitch to create two excaliburs (laughs) and became double king that's awesome i like that but uh yeah i just Mm -hmm. i've never been able to finish the game but i you know, even though I do think the story is pretty interesting, it just kind of peters out for me. Like, it can't maintain my interest for long, and I don't know why. I've seen a number of people complain that it's also too easy. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily to the game's detriment because, like I said, I was com- I was something of a novice coming into that style of game. So I appreciated the more balanced approach to, for example, the gear distribution where I was able to get some pretty powerful weapons by the end of the game just by virtue of staying on the main track. I didn't have to do a lot of side quests. Uh, and oh, yeah. it, it it kept me in it. I did not feel super frustrated and that put me into proper mindset to tackle more challenging fare later on. Mm-hmm. Well, my experience was much like Jeremy's in that I was so hyped for it and so excited to play it and I put so much time into it and then I didn't really end up finishing it. Uh, it is and, a long game though. Yeah, it is, but you know... It's just, probably the most expansive GBA game you'll find. Yeah, it's up there. But yeah, I'd, I still feel a little bit bad that I didn't end up finishing it after having such excitement for it and enjoying it quite a bit, you know, judge crap and all that stuff notwithstanding. So I don't know. And then eventually I just went completely indifferent to uh, to A2. So <laughs> I tried to play A2 uh, just as an aside, but – it really did not hold my interest, and yeah. it took me. Spent, I spent a long time wondering why. It has one of the mm. most. Yeah, I reviewed that one, and uh, <sighs> one, one, yeah. <laughs> the, the 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 restrictions on the game were just yeah. baffling. It was so frustrating. I, I have one thing to point out about that game. The main character is so overdesigned. It feels like he's a parody of a Nomura <laughs> character. I feel like that designer usually has his shit together, but with that character, I feel like it was like a legitimate parody of something Nomura would draw because he's got like pouches and swords and zippers and pockets. Yeah. It's just insane. It was a mess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway, Final Fantasy Tactics Advance was meant to be sort of the lead-in to Matsuno's next game, which was Final Fantasy XII, which was... Um, supposed to be launched in about 2004 but sadly the game didn't come out till 2006 because it was uh, it was troubled i feel it was actually let's see final fantasy 12 was announced in like 1999 2000 wasn't it yeah no. they announced they um, announced final, final fantasy, fantasy 10, 10 11, 11 and 12. 12 no 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 uh, yeah all the same time no 12 was announced in 2002 
uh, I believe, for 2003-ish. But it was known that 12 was coming out. No, they they, they mentioned something about Matsuno was working on 12 really early, and then it was no, we started to see more details about it. It was 9, 10, 11 that was all announced at that same conference uh, in 2000. Or I remember 12, they released a piece of but background yeah. art, like that, the yes. city. Yeah. yeah, that was there. That was cool. That that got the train rolling. <laughs> Final Fantasy twelve arguably altered RPG history in the sense that it took so dang long to make that Final Fantasy thirteen got kicked over to the next generation of consoles. Yeah. Uh, a game that was supposed mm. to be almost a throwaway that was going to kind of end the generation and then they could focus fresh on the new generation. Yeah. And uh, I don't... Uh, and then everything went the way that it did, yeah. so it wasn't so good, but... Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy Twelve, uh, it's such a good game, and yet it's just so not, flawed. It's uh, deeply flawed, and I think it's the last one, the last game that is sort of. Uh, I hate to say this, it's the last Final Fantasy with dignity. It feels like it's. <laughs> it's not. Uh, yes. I don't know. I, take that as you will. I just no. I'm I'm playing Lightning Returns right now for review. Yeah, and there, that game has a lot of things, but dignity is not. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No. And it 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 kind of breaks my heart too because. It tries to be an open-world Final Fantasy game, and, you know, it works on some levels, but Final Fantasy XII did the open-world Final Fantasy so much better, and that was a full generation prior. That was seven years ago. I like Lightning Returns better than you do, Jeremy, but I agree with you. I think Final Fantasy XII does do the open-world thing better. Uh, going back to... Before Final Fantasy XII came out, I had never seen a Final Fantasy get that much flack from the media and from the fans before it even came out because everyone seemed to decide at once that they hated it. Hmm. And there's a story, maybe Mm -hmm. apocryphal, that when Final Fantasy XII came out in 2006 and it was being – there was a big launch party in Japan and the first fan came up to the Square Enix representatives who were present – bowed really low and said, please remake Final Fantasy VII, and then took their game and left. <laughs> yeah, okay, We sure. get those crazies here, too. Yeah, well, that's Final Fantasy fans yeah. for you. Yes. Um, I have to disagree with your narrative uh-huh. that everyone universally hated Final Fantasy XII, because that's not the case. No. Like, it definitely wasn't... I'm talking about the lead-up. I'm talking about the lead-up. I mean, where Penny Arcade I comics didn't, I didn't were... See that in, where they basically... Where Penny Arcade just Penny killed Arcade it Penny Arcade does ages. not speak for the world at large. Especially now. They speak for Penny Arcade. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, there was there was a lot of enthusiasm for Final Fantasy XII. There was frustration that it was so delayed and there were concerns about mm-hmm. it. But I, I definitely didn't get the impression that everyone decided all at once that they hated the game. And actually, there was a lot of exciting, excitement for it. I remember doing, um, you know, like import playthroughs when it first came out in Japan. And those articles got insane amounts of traffic because people were really curious to see more about it. I don't think it was people going to say, this game sucks but more like, what the hell is this game? Yeah. Oh, interesting. People didn't really know what to make um, of it, I would say. They didn't, but but I don't think that means that they hated mm. it. Um, there was a lot of flack given to the main character because Vaughn is stupid um, <laughs> and looks stupid. That's true. But but no, I mean, there was a lot of interest in the game. Um, I think... I don't know. I, I remember seeing a demo of it at E3. I think it was my first E3 in 2004, and it was basically the introductory section where it's like the prologue and you're playing as none of your party members. And I was just like, oh my God, I get this. I see what's happening. This is amazing. This is perfect. This is like Matsuno meets Final Fantasy and it works and it's great. And then two years later, 
It finally came out and it was a Kawazu game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God. Um, I mean, do we, I, I guess we should talk about how the game plays. You are sort of like the RPG coach. You're like the RPG party coach and that you set up plays for your for your characters. The only problem with that... I mean, you're a programmer, basically. Basically, yeah. And like one of the main problems with that is there are some very obvious like lines of programming that aren't in there. Like one of the most notorious ones is uh, stealing. Uh, you can tell your guy to steal and he'll keep stealing, but there's no command that says, you know, like if there's no item, stop stealing. No, yeah. no, he'll keep stealing even if the enemy still has nothing. So you have to set up like a gambit to be like – Right, uh, which, is, yeah. which is annoying, but there are ways to work around that. Right. Like you have your guy steal and then you have someone attack him, uh, the, attack the same you know character that's being targeted and you have a an, uh, condition on stealing so that if an enemy has less than 100% um, health right. – then you do something different. And I ended up doing that. So there were there were ways to work around that. But yeah, I agree. Like it was really ambitious and really crazy. And and the idea really was to create the sense that you're playing an MMO as a single player. Yeah. Um, which was bold and interesting and just born to be flawed. But I'm so glad they tried it because it was it was I don't know, like it's weird. Playing playing a big open world game like that was actually kind of relaxing because you didn't have to constantly dicker with each little, you know, trivial encounter that you had along the way. Like you could kind of focus on mapping and exploring and saying where do I want to go and what are my strategies and your characters would just kind of, you know, clear out the bad guys for mm-hmm. you. It's like, you know, basically the same as taping down the attack button in Final Fantasy 6, but it feels less like a cheat. Right. And uh, the, that was my the license board, I love it in theory, and they actually f- kind of fixed it. I don't know if you want to call it fixed it for the international Zodiac version, but like with Final Fantasy VI and VII, sort of every character ended up being kind of the same towards the end. Like you would eventually unlock that whole board. And I know this because I did finish the game after like five years of work, five <laughs> years of like returning to it every six months. But I felt like that was a huge misstep in that like I wanted different characters. I wanted different job classes. I just wanted something to make them stand out from each other. But really I, I just cycled guys in and out of my party just to see different characters run around. There was no real differentiation yeah, I mean, between them. For me, um, like I, I liked the openness of the license board. It did – turn out to be pretty much all the same at the end but i like the fact that the game had sort of designated roles for the characters like oh bosh he's a knight you're gonna make him be a knight oh ash she's gonna be a mage oh <laughs> Penelo, she's gonna be a healer um and i said no screw that i turned uh, Penelo into like my ninja thief so i had this like little <laughs> spindly girl running around with a giant katana stealing things from enemies and then slashing them open with a with a sword and it was great i loved but there it are, there it are, such um, a, it was so goofy there are these little oddities though that i've heard about in the game in that you might naturally want to give balthier guns but he actually has the slowest gun shooting animations in the game so it's actually to your detriment to do that even though it feels natural so there are like weird little <laughs> uh little i don't know problems like that my approach to playing the game was most of the time I could run around and just slash people. Yeah. And it worked well. And then you get to a boss battle, <clears throat> and I would inevitably switch over to my mage and spend a lot of time buffing and healing while the rest of my characters just hacked and slashed and hacked and slashed until the enemy was dead. Um, I really didn't understand the, the limit break system in that game. It felt like I would I would use the limit break and some things would happen, but I wasn't entirely sure what was going on. Yeah, and then that was that. It's hard to wrap your mind around. You sort of have to go into every battle and be like, do I want to use my limit breaks? And then as you use them, you get a second chance to do it again if you can get it within a certain time limit. So it's sort of like a, a roulette system in that it flashes between, I don't know, it's been a while, but it is not the best implemented you know, limit break technology. I will say in its favor that... <laughs> 
as Final Fantasy games go, especially on the PS2, it felt epic. Oh, yeah. Especially the the very beginning when uh, the, the, the country's being invaded, there's a huge airship battle, you see uh, the, the, the king or the lord standing over the map and he's looking sad and... Uh, the the princess has to go into exile to lead the rebellion and right. it it felt big it felt pretty great um, yeah and you know even though even though lightning returns at uh, at several points very obviously is like look we can make a game like Skyrim it's like everyone loves <laughs> that's us. the dream like Final Fantasy twelve actually did have that immense Elder Scrolls feel because not only could you pretty much go wherever you want, including going places where you had no business being at that point of the game. Um, there was, in addition to the main quest, there were just so many side quests, so much extra content in the game that you could do. Like, uh, I, I, I never finished the game all the way through because I just wanted to do everything and eventually, uh, lost the ability to play PlayStation two games. Um, so it, it, my, my game kind of sits in the sad state of, like 90% completion. Aww. It's very pathetic. But, uh, you know, if they ever bring that up for Vita or something, I will absolutely play it inside and out. You can also, um, uh, people, uh, patch the, uh, international job system version. Oh yeah. They, yes. uh, trans translated the things that were not translated yet. And you can play that now on not you, Jeremy, but anybody can play that, you know, on an emulator if they really wanted to. And I mean, you get that sort of HD, remaster experience in a way right. with an improved uh, game or arguably improved anyway. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy, can you like talk about, do you know a lot about how they changed the, the job? I know there's like a ton of tweaks in uh, the international well, system. Basically, yeah. Basically with the international job system, you pick a class for your character and that is your character's class and you can yeah. branch out and learn some other skills. But you know, once you define a class for a character, they're stuck in that that role. There's no like extreme multi-classing or everyone becomes a jack of all trades like in the standard Final Fantasy XII. It's much more restrictive and forces you to, um, you know, play a lot more intelligently because you have these great limitations. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I would really like for them to do, you know, like with Final Fantasy X and X-2 and come out with an HD remaster of it that includes both versions of the game. And I, I feel like that is one game that they wouldn't have to do a lot of work on to make it HD because the art assets they created for the game, like if you put them in an emulator, they look amazing already. Yeah. Like they used super high quality textures and everything for the cities and the and the monsters and characters. There's so much detail that doesn't actually come through on PS2. Yeah, you got to play that, it on um, the PS3. It just it, <laughs> it begs. I mean, even even then, like that's just kind of interpolation. Mm-hmm. But the actual data is there for a much uh, higher resolution version of the game. It just begs to be given an official, you know, remaster. But we'll see if that actually happens. It's kind of the deprecated version of Final Fantasy. I just hope like, they um... because of its weird. It's, I think because of its weird um, development situation, Square kind of distances itself from. I that have a, a feeling that we'll never see a remake because <laughs> I think Square Enix would much rather make Final Fantasy Ten Three. Yeah, I just hope they kept the resources because I I read that they had to basically recreate Kingdom Hearts from scratch because they didn't really? keep the resources from Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. So well, that worries me. Goes through that, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not unique to Square by far. That's game development for you. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully standards and practices changed between 2002 and 2006. Yeah. Before my guess is probably they did. Before we finish up Final Fantasy 12, can we just talk about how weird it is that Vaughn and Pinello were basically inserted into a story in which they didn't really belong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the main character was supposed to be, um, I forget who was going uh, to be. Bosch. Oh, Bosch. Von Bosch. Ronsenberg. Yeah. 
Yeah, he was he was going to be the main character. He was much more of a Matsuno main character. Well, for a little while, for a little while, Vaughn was Bosch von Ronsenberg. Mm. Mm. But instead, he's... Don't believe Vondor's lies. He's an <laughs> Aladdin-style street rat who wants to become a sky pirate. And the juxtaposition of kind of d- traditional anime and, and Square Enix design tropes with the Matsuno style of epic fantasy, uh, European history kind of thing, really jarring. <laughs> I like it though. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I will say I think it that actually works okay with him as a point of view character. I, um, people have made the comparison between Vaughn and Pinello and C three PO and R two D two, given the the Star Wars love that's on display in Final Fantasy twelve. And I kind of buy that. Like as windows into a bigger world, they're interesting. And you know, that's that's actually let's bring this back to Yasumi Matsuno. That's kind of his thing, mm. is like to show the people who are heroes and un, unrewarded for it. Um, you know, that's that's the entire premise of Unsung Story, but that's also the premise of Tactics Ogre and the premise of Final Fantasy Tactics. And here you have sort of the same thing. Like, you're taking control of two characters as sort of the leads who give you, you know, a, a window into like the high-level stuff that's happening yeah. between kingdoms and and like with these ancient gods and everything. But at the same time, they're also giving you a point of view of like the average citizen, you know, the people living in the Warrens under the city. I know the, those characters take a lot of crap, and I would have been interested in seeing Final Fantasy twelve as they originally intended it, mm. with Bosch as the the protagonist. But I, I do think that actually having Van as the POV kind of works. One one thing about that, I feel I, I agree with you. I feel Pinello is completely underutilized. She's kidnapped once, and that's all she serves in the plot. But also, uh, no, she's a ninja thief oh. who runs around with a katana, man. <laughs> okay, depends on what the hell game we're playing. Your game. But uh, yeah. also in Vagrant Story, yeah, in, in that game, you are on an undercover mission. If you die, no one will ever know what will happen to you. They make that clear in the very beginning. Like, no one knows you're doing this, so you're like yep, another. You've been disavowed. Yeah. So that follows through with that game too. I will say that I did like Van and Pinello in the end. I was just commenting that it was a little jarring. Yeah, once, yeah. Once, once, my once, point. once they're swept under the rug, <laughs> don't worry about it. Once so it starts being about evil twins, then you yeah. know. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, something happened midway through Final Fantasy XII's development, and no one is actually sure what. There are rumors that Matsuno became sick. I think he probably was just overworked and um, it just couldn't handle the the role of being XII's director, which with all the things that in, that entailed. Yeah. It was such a big project; there were so many expectations on it. He had to manage so many different moving parts. I mean, it was you know, it's kind of your typical AAA game development where there's just tons of, of things to worry about. And I don't think that's what he's really into. So mm-hmm. it's not really surprising that he left development. Uh, Akitoshi Kawazu took over and finished the game. And Matsuno kind of disappeared for like four or five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Square's corporate culture probably did not make for the healthiest working environment, just knowing who, who left that company in you know the past 10 years. It's, too. it's mm-hmm. kind of reminiscent of what happened to Yoshinori Ono, um, where mm, he was yeah. being pushed to the utter limit where he was physically breaking down with Capcom and that's just what Japanese game development does yeah, to you. Yeah. You, are, you do not have a life. 
Um, and if you're not completely committed to it, I could see how it can destroy you. Definitely. Yeah, and you know, given the amount of publisher interference that reportedly happened with Final Fantasy twelve and the way the you know the original story was changed around to be more kid friendly, to be more you know appealing to the kids who hang out in Shibuya Ikiguro, um, I can see where he wouldn't be one hundred one hundred percent committed to it. So he he kind of fell off the map for quite a while and resurfaced in two thousand nine working on Sega's Mad. What the hell? Which, <laughs> Odd fit. So weird. Yeah, uh, I played it in case anyone needs any information. I did as well. Yeah, I like the game looks. The game never had any appeal to me, even with Matsuno writing it, so I've never played it. it. Made, Tell me about it. Made it made some weird choices because the entire game was black and white except for the blood, which was red, which I felt was an ex- extremely huge way to turn off a, a mainstream audience, make a game in black and white. But the well, game... <laughs> it was platinum. And it was that, on the Wii. That is true. Platinum and the Wii, which is like sales sales joy right there. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was a typical platinum game in that it was all about making combat look really good. But in this case, you were sort of torturing these like faceless mooks with this huge like Hellboy looking character. And tossing and, people into fans. Yeah. And the, the weird part about the game, or actually the cool part about this game, is that there was a constant color commentary with... Um, John DiMaggio and Greg Proops yeah, yeah. running throughout. And it felt like they rarely ran out of things to say about you and what you were doing in the game, which was really cool. I mean, if you can get it, it's probably like, God, like 3 to $8, whatever <laughs> whatever a Wii game goes for these days. I bought it for like 10 bucks, And it's a good way to spend a few hours. I kind of got sick of it by the end. But it, it is the least Matsuno-type game you could ever find. I feel like maybe he needed to make his rent and he knew people at Platinum. It's like, can I help you make your game or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it sounds like it. And also, you know, well, in terms of like the localization, I mean, Matsuno is kind of equated with Alexander Smith for a lot of his uh, games. But, you know, with uh, Platinum, it's, it's J.P. Kellums. And mm. he adds that sort of distinct flavor to Platinum games. It's like, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of him surfacing with Platinum, you take your work where you can, where you can get it. That's true. Platinum was kind of a new thing. And I'm probably knew a few guys and yeah. there he was i have to wonder if he if he burned bridges by bowing out oh, of absolutely 12. i mean but the way corporate culture works in japan like your company is your family and you know he was not able to live up to obligations so maybe there was some shame involved some sort of exile <laughs> involved the, i mean on the other hand he came back and did the tactics ogre that's true remake, yeah so. i mean eventually yeah i was though he was like i think it was a producer almost more of a consultant role mm-hmm. yeah uh, he did not have a heavy role in that project so yeah, if you can get Mad World for like five bucks, do it. It's just it's worth checking out because it's weird and the color commentary is pretty hilarious. But and I mean it's a cheap Wii game, so go for it. Yeah, but I definitely see Tactics Ogre as his re-entry into the public eye. In fact, we tried to arrange an interview, like a phone interview or a Skype interview with Matsuno before Mad World came out, and Sega was helping us out, Platinum was helping us out, and we got pretty far into the process, and then it broke down at the last minute because apparently Matsuno decided. You know, maybe this isn't the game that I want to make my triumphant return. <laughs> I could see that. So, yeah. So he, uh, nothing ever came from that, which was disappointing. But, you know, then like two years later, um, Tactics Ogre came out, uh, you know, the, the remake for PSP. And that was amazing and was totally worth it. And also, um, you can and we've get... already talked about Tactics Ogre, but, you... but we should discuss very briefly what what the remake did well um, among other things it changed the way that you leveled up your classes yeah it made it so that the classes themselves leveled up and you can just attach it to a character and like they, uh, they're a level 13 or something like Valkyria Chronicles right yeah yeah and also it, that's, that's a weirdly specific thing to point out as sort of the introduction for the remake though <laughs> Well, I mean, are you talking about the 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 uh, rewind turn system that they implemented? I mean, just the whole thing okay. is is it's really interesting of, because mm-hmm. 
it is a remake, but at the same time, it's like deeply faithful to the original and yet very, very different. Like they didn't change the visuals very much except, you know, to go in and turn the backgrounds into functional 3D spaces, yeah. even though they don't look like it and you can't can't rotate anything. You can like change the pitch and angle at which you're looking, including a top down sort of a classical strategy game approach. Um, but yeah, they added the the wheel and the chariot systems, which completely changed the game experience. Brilliant idea to make it so that you could rewind time, yeah. essentially, and redo a mistake, I want especially that. in a game like that. Yeah. I mean, I want that in every strategy game because I feel like you're, you're going to be doing that naturally through saving and loading if you're going to be like, I don't know, playing like I do sometimes. So it, it's good that they made it part of the game itself. So you're not like, oh, I have to save after this turn, you know, because something might happen. No, they trust you to sort of go back through your turns and figure things out. I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't think there's any shame in being able to rewind a strategy game because like what what is what is the honor or integrity in playing through a losing battle and then starting over from the beginning. That's just wasting the player's time. Like for people who want to do that, okay, that's fine. You can still play that way. Mm -hmm. Tactics Ogre doesn't force you to rewind. But for people who are like, oh, I just screwed up. I don't want to have to reboot this and play over the last 20 minutes of, of game progress. You can just zip back, you know, up to 30 moves and try different tactics. You can't use that system to cheese the game. Because if you choose the same actions, it doesn't change the random number generator. Things will always turn out the same way if you use the same actions. But it lets you experiment with different actions. So it's a really good balance. Like, It's not a, just an instant win ability, but it does greatly reduce the frustration of playing a complex, challenging game like that. It also made it so that when you finish the story, you could go back to any decision point and try something new and kind of experience the whole thing. Right. which yeah. is really terrific in terms of being able to just get the entire picture of the story. And the story is so good that the player really deserves to be able to see the whole thing without having to replay it a d half dozen I times. I agree. Yeah, if, if I ever were stranded on a desert island, I would take that game and I would play every single possible permutation of it and just experience the entire thing, like every angle of it. The fact that you can do that so so painlessly is amazing. But at the same time, you know, like a straight up playthrough of the game is 80, 100 hours. Yeah. So we're talking like a massive commitment of your life, which I don't have the time <laughs> for. And it is still hard. It is hard. Really hard. And I feel like we're incredibly fortunate to have that game be localized here because the PSP was so dead in 2011. Um, God, I, I just felt like this. it was this gift from Square, you know. It was hanging on yeah, for I mean, dear they, life. Square made a lot of really um, optimistic localization choices at the very end of the PSP's life, and I don't think any of them paid off <laughs> or paid off because you had that, and you had uh, Parasite Eve, <sighs> the third birthday, yeah. and you had uh, Dissidia Duodecim, and there was like uh, Lord of Vermilion. Oh God! Like yeah. who the hell bought that? Nobody. No one but no that. Type Zero. No. Like they, no they type totally. Zero. Well, no, because Type Zero came after yeah, those games. Yeah, bombed, that's true. They were like oh my God, we just about destroyed our business. Let's not do that again. <laughs> no, I'm glad we got it. And in fact, if you own a Vita, it is available on PSN and you oh, can download so it. And it, I would consider it an essential. It has the Retronaut seal of approval. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Really, most of these games, I, I can't think of any of these games that I would not recommend to anyone, but that one I think is probably the best combination of accessibility and depth and complexity and challenge. Like it just has everything. Yeah. I was uh, doing some research and I was looking through the old screenshots and I started getting the itch to play it again on my Vita. And I think I might go download it when I get home. 
It's a dangerous itch. Yeah. It is. All right, we're running really long, so we should uh, wrap this up by talking about Matsuno's most recent game briefly. And fortunately, it's a very brief game. Um, Crimson Shroud, which was a chapter of the Guild 1 compilation by Level 5. Yep. Uh, and I know you guys love it. I love so it, yeah. let's hear about it. I mean, I feel like it, it still has too many ideas uh, for a game of its size, but it doesn't really work against the game's uh, favor. I feel like... It is. It feels like a complete experience, even though not all of those ideas get f- fleshed out to as well as the game wants them to be. Um, there are there are a few issues with the game. Like one part of the game, in order to continue, you basically have to keep fighting the same enemy over and over for in order for to get to drop yep. a key, which I feel like is just a, a kind of just a stupid and choice. It doesn't tell you what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. So you're like, where the heck do I get this key? I feel like everyone got stopped there. Yeah, I I, I lucked into it with my second fight against those right. guys, but. I know people spent like five or six hours just wondering, what the hell do I do? Like me. So <laughs> that part was, that. yeah, it had some flaws, definitely. It's, it's really mechanically um, sound. And it actually, Bravely Default reminds me of the battle system in this game for some reason. But it's very mechanically sound, and I love how dark it is. This game, nothing but bad things happen, and it has a very, <laughs> very, like, <laughs> shocking ending, which you guys should play Given that see. so many RPGs have direct roots to D&D, I appreciate a game that just is really direct and forthright yeah. and saying this is a tabletop game we literally have dice that you are rolling so literal that the dice can go bouncing out of the cup yes <laughs> that's great uh, I it's love fantastic it. yeah i mean i feel like this is a game that akitoshi kawazu would have made yeah. if he thought along the same lines as matsuno uh-huh. because he's always trying to take board game concepts and turn them into video games i mean you have uh, unlimited saga, which is the same thing, but so much more opaque. Yeah. Whereas this, like this, seizes on the right elements of tabletop games, and it it makes it very accessible and very obvious. Like using the bottom touchscreen to roll your dice. Yes, I get that. Okay, my little characters, everything is a miniature, so it's all kind of told with abstract terms. I get that. Like even the cutscenes where it's like stories unfolding, it's still like miniatures in little different mm-hmm. poses. It's hilarious. <laughs> But at the same time, like you, you take it seriously, like you, you buy into it because this is basically like a master D and D dungeon master, um, giving you this great adventure module, just a single standalone story. And you really want to see where it goes and you want to play through by his rules and explore his dungeon to get to the end of this guy's story. Like it's, it's really wonderful. Um, of course it doesn't have, you know, the human element of a real D and D campaign. It's all kind of prefixed and there's just the one story, but I don't know. To me, it is probably the truest distillation of, of like the D and D tabletop experience into a video game, at least in that, that sort of like storytelling facet. Like it really, really nails. And it. isn't he making a, not a sequel, but like a follow up or something. Is that, that I just make that up that news or you can cut this out if that's true. I thought I heard something. I, I haven't heard that, okay. but you know, um, unsung story is not the only project he's working right. on and he's kind of like, apparently he's kind of working as an advisor or consultant, um, you know, game planner on a bunch of different oh, things cool. and not not having to worry about being the director and deal with the day-to-day stuff, like with Unsung Story. Like, he just comes up with ideas and says, you know, this is how the game should work. Let's let's make this happen. No, no, you need to t- tweak that because it's stupid or whatever. Um, so I don't know what else he's working on. It wouldn't surprise me if he's doing something else along the lines of Crimson Shroud. I would love that. Yeah, me too.
so that pretty much takes us through the uh, Yasumi Matsuno universe. Um, Does anyone else have anything to say about him, about the games he makes? Is he awesome? Is he insane? Is he totally overrated? I think it's uh, clear that he's finally finding out what works for him in terms of his career and roles within that. Like, uh... He's, he was clearly getting burned out on the Final Fantasy stuff, and it's just like, well, okay, I, I need to find something that works for me and how I can manage that. And yeah. it seems like he's finally hitting that. Yeah, and along with a lot of other great Square talent, it's great to see him be independent, you know. Um, I think everyone good from Square is now independent. Yes. He has a vision, and he's created some of the best strategy console games ever made. And mm. I think that if you're an RPG fan, you absolutely have to play his games uh, especially Tactics Ogre, but also Final Fantasy Tactics. Uh, Vagrant Story is worth checking out, even Crimson Shroud to an extent, because he takes conventions, established conventions, and he plays around with them, and he adds in new mechanics. He's not afraid to play with structure. I really admire developers like that. Mm-hmm. And um, so anywhere that Matsuno goes, I will follow. All right, then. Um, I guess that wraps it up for this episode. I'd like to thank... Bob and Ray, of course, and also Kat and Hugh Frank for suggesting this topic. And finally, Yasumi Matsuno for making cool video games that we could talk about. Um, you can check out our blog at retronauts.com. You can check us out on Twitter, on Facebook, on Twitch. What am I forgetting? SoundCloud. SoundCloud. Yay. If you want to listen to all of yes, our episodes on a mobile device, SoundCloud is the best way to do so. Yes, do that. Um, you should go to iTunes and tell the world that we're cool because I don't know, we don't really get anything out of it, but it's kind of, you know, an ego boost to see us show up in the top 20 podcasts for games or whatever. I don't know. Apparently it's good for you to like give us ratings on, on iTunes. It's extremely so good. Yeah. Make that. multiple yes. accounts and give us five stars. Yeah. We really appreciate yes, it. Yes. That's great. Please game the system <laughs> for us because that's ethical. Um, anyway, that's it for episode 16 of Retronauts. I'm Jeremy Parrish, and we'll be back next week to talk about Evilly!